Amen. You may be seated. So good. So good to sing together to one another, to the Lord. What a stewardship we've been given. All these great songs, these hymns of the faith. Just love to sing rich theology uh, back to the Lord and to one another. Thankful that you love those things too. (laughs) Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. I've entitled this message, The Dream Team. The Dream Team. Follow along as I read verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I didn't grow up uh, following basketball that much, but I married into a family that very much did. (laughs) Um, My wife's family is very uh, into basketball, and so I can appreciate basketball, and you know, it wasn't that I didn't ever watch it, it just wasn't, you know, my big thing, but I can truly appreciate the 1992 NBA Olympic team that was put together in Barcelona, Spain, uh, and um, for the Olympics, and they put one of the best teams together uh, to compete. Uh, They The team drew from the all-stars throughout the league, and you had people like Magic Johnson, John Stockton, Michael, the heir, Jordan. You had (laughs) Scottie Pippen, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Carl the Mailman Malone, Patrick Ewing. I mean, this was the dream team, as they called them, and they brought home the gold for the USA. And, And, you know, sometimes you can... Uh, have a lot of really good guys and you put them together and they don't work together. But in this case, it did. And uh, they brought home the gold for our country. This morning, we look at the A-team draft. We look at the draft of the dream team, the 12 apostles. Yet for this team, there's nothing really extraordinary about them. Uh, There's not a lot on their resume to commend them to... uh, to us or to the Lord. They're actually relatively ordinary, simple men, almost all of them from Galilee, many of them fishermen. The point of this dream team was not to bring glory to man, but to bring glory to God. It actually wasn't to be about these men, but about the message that these men would herald. And so Jesus picked the perfect guys for the task because they were nobodies. Yes, we, we understand that they would become significant for the work that they would do, but what is their significance based upon? It's based upon the message they preached, which was a message not about themselves, but a message about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his perfect life, about his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, about his glorious resurrection to vindicate his person and his work. 
of his glorious ascension, of his glorious session at the right hand of the Father, and of his glorious return to rule and reign from David's throne over and from the earth. That is what they were known for, preaching that message. They were known for pointing away from themselves to Christ. And so we see these 12 now chosen by the Lord. He has had many disciples following him, and out of that group of disciples, that larger group, he selects for himself 12, 12 men who will be with him and will now, and this is maybe close to halfway through Jesus' public ministry that he selects these men. And he will give them authority and he will empower them to cast out demons, to perform miracles, and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he will be training them and teaching them for the remainder of his life, preparing to send them out into all the world. And we are really the the product of that. We are the product of the disciples. Every week, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And so they have this foundational role in the church. Simple men, ordinary men. And so we look at them this morning. We might say, and now, the starting lineup for your Galilean apostles. (laughs) Now, it's really interesting the way that this is set up. I mean, you do have a common list. There's four lists of the apostles, and they do follow some kind of structure. Some guys are mixed around, but there's also some commonalities. Like Peter always leads the list. Judas always comes last. And actually, there's three groups of four, uh, and you have... uh, generally speaking, the same three in each group, and generally speaking, the same person leads off uh, each of those, uh, those sets. You have kind of the inner circle among the 12. So you have like all the disciples, and you have the 12, and then you have this inner three, Peter, James, and John, as we see, and they have a lot of airtime that they get in the Gospels, whereas some of them don't really get any mention but there seem to be the inner circle. They go up in the Mount of Transfiguration. They're there for certain special healings. Now, this is like the first round draft picks of the apostles. Simon, the rock, Peter. Andrew, oh, Andrew's listed there here close because he's Peter's brother, but really James and John, who also have nicknames Bonerges. Uh, they're the sons of thunder. Uh, and what you gotta love about these guys, they almost all have a nickname. I mean, so just, you gotta imagine these 12 guys living, doing life together, doing everything together. And so, I mean, you know they picked on each other and you know that they had, you know, little names for each other and stuff and that comes out in the Gospels. I mean, they were doing everything together with Jesus, 12 men. And so who are these men? Who are these men? Well, we want to see um, in in our passage four uh, aspects of the apostles. We want to see the dependence in prayer for the apostles, verse 12 the draft of the apostles in verse 13, the beginning, the distinctiveness of the apostles in the end of verse 13, and then the description of the apostles in verses 14 to 16. Let's first look at the dependence in prayer for the apostles. Dependence in prayer for the apostles in verse 12. Look there again. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke indicates the time frame here. He says, in, the, in these days, in these days. So, well, what days? <laughs> uh, well, if you remember in our study of Luke, uh, we, we took 
last week to look at kind of like a theological issue of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, but, but in the context of Jesus teaching on the Sabbath and, and doing things on the Sabbath in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. But what we noted is from really chapter 5, verse 17 to chapter 6, verse 11, that big section deals with conflict. Conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And so that's what we're coming out of. So it's really in these days, in, that, in the days of this conflict, Jesus chooses 12. And that's significant because what Jesus is doing is choosing leadership for what will become the church. He's his leaders for the church. And his choice of 12 is significant. It's a way of setting up a new leadership of his people in this age. And it's a way of saying that he's rejected the false apostate Judaism of his day. The false shepherds have been identified, those who oppose Jesus. And at the end of chapter uh, 6, verse 11, you have them wanting to kill Jesus. They want to plot to kill him. And so they have been rejected. They are the false shepherds of Israel. And so now Jesus establishes his true shepherds. Yes, they need to be trained, but they have the raw materials that he will work with. These are the true Israelites indeed. They are ethnic Jews, all of them who believe and minister to their countrymen and to the nations later. These will be the master's men. And before choosing these men who would upset the whole world, he sought the Father in prayer all night. Luke uh, is the only gospel writer to tell us about his all-night Jesus is all-nighter in prayer. Uh, Matthew and, and Mark tell about the choosing of the 12 as well, but they don't include this feature of Jesus praying all night. Luke loves to highlight the prayers of Jesus, and especially Jesus praying um, during significant moments, leading up to significant moments in his ministry. He's already highlighted a number of times when Jesus prays. He'll continue to do so, and here is one of them. Now, why does Luke want us to have this information that Jesus spent all night in prayer? Well, there's a few reasons I think we could glean. We could say that Luke wants us to see this Trinitarian fellowship of the Son. Here's the eternal Son who has taken to himself a real humanity, and yet he is praying to the Father by the help of the Spirit. And he spends all night in prayer. And we see this throughout. I mean, Jesus is communing with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. In, uh, just after the Upper Room Discourse in John 17, we have one of the most incredible prayers as the Eternal Son prays to the Father and we get this window into what prayer looks like in uh, the Trinity as he's praying and asking the Father and worshiping. And so as, as they, the triune uh, enjoyment of one another. So that's certainly part of it. Second, he wants us to realize the significance of what Jesus is about to do. He's about to choose 12 men who are going to have an incredible impact upon the world. They are going to turn the world upside down. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, this is actually in the context of Paul preaching, going through the synagogues, preaching, explaining. Um, Acts chapter 17, he, it says in verse two, and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas 
as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who, are, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. <laughs> Paul and his apostolic associates have turned the world upside down. They've, they've just caused such great uh, upset for the way the world had been. These men have had and have made the greatest impact upon the world by the enabling power of God. I mean, Western civilization has been shaped by the message of these men. And so, yes, he wants us to realize the significance of this event because Jesus spends this concentrated time in prayer showing its importance. And then third, he wants us to see the example of Jesus in prayer for our lives. And if Jesus, who, in perfect, who, who is perfect in obedience and perfect in fellowship with God, prays like this, then what does that say about our need of prayer, our privilege of prayer? Some of you are wondering how a person could pray all night. I mean, what, what would you do? What would you say? How is this possible? How could a person pray for one hour? In seminary, we had to take a class called prayer. It's a class called prayer. And in the class called prayer, we had some assignments. One of our assignments was to pray one hour every day for the entire semester. And we had to journal about it. And I, I never realized how little I prayed until I took this class. <laughs> and, and it was so uh, inf- uh, just transformative and, and helpful. But one of this, part of just giving this assignment was to also give practical ways to think through, how, how should you structure this? How should you think about this? Um, and it's funny how seminarians, you know, they, they start, it's like the Pharisees almost, like they start to think, well, does it all have to be prayed in one sitting? Like, can you break it up into half-hour segments and do like half-hour in the morning and half-hour at night? And then it's like, well, okay, if you can do that, then what about, can you break it into like five-minute segments? And it's like, oh, I prayed five over here. I prayed five over here. Can you do it in one-minute segments? And it's like, wait a minute, you lost the point. <laughs> And then people are making rules, and you're like, wait a minute, isn't this about just seeking God in prayer? Okay, so, but they gave us some uh, instruction and said, hey, actually, it's not as daunting as you think. Here's what you can do. You can, you can split the whole hour into five-minute uh, segments, and so you have 12 segments, and then assign each segment a topic, and then pray about that topic for those five minutes, and when the five minutes are up, move on to the next one. So they gave us some topics, and you know, some guys shaped them and made them their own. Uh, and so here's, here's the 12 topics I like to use is praise. Praise God for five minutes. Can you do that, right? Uh, confession, confessing sin, seeking the Lord. Are there sins to confess? Five minutes. Thanksgiving for five minutes. Intercession. And really, this is like things in your own life that are on your heart. Pray for five minutes. Petition. Things for others. Pray for the needs of others. Pull out your prayer journal, whatever, your list. Uh, Missions. Pray for five minutes. Church. Pray for five minutes. Evangelism. Pray for five minutes. Family. And then the the next one is scripture and meditation. Just pull out the Bible and meditate on a passage for five minutes. And then pray through that passage of scripture for five minutes. And then finally, sing. To God for five minutes, right? If prayer is talking to God, then singing is prayer to God as well, uh, as you sing to the Lord and uh, are grateful for his work. So pull out the hymnal. So that, that's, that's an hour right there. And you can do that and break that down. 
And do you think you would grow more spiritually doing that or less spiritually if you did something like that? <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> you know, the church modeled Jesus in their prayer before big decisions related to leadership. In Acts chapter 6, they're about to appoint these men to help serve the, um, the, the women who are being overlooked in the, in the service, the daily service. Uh, they pray. They, before they send out some workers in Acts chapter 13 as missionaries, they, they pray. Uh, and you just see this time and again uh, where God's people are in the New Testament seeking him in prayer in an intensive way, especially before leadership decisions are made. I came across a Puritan uh, saying about a couple weeks ago that I thought was just really helpful for me too. And I, can't, I don't know who said it, but I think a lot of them said it. And it's a simple statement about prayer. They would say this, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. I don't know if you had this experience before where you go, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to set aside some time and I'm going to pray. And you start praying. And then like you, you catch yourself a few minutes in and you're like, wait a minute, what am I saying? You're like on autopilot, prayer autopilot. You say a lot of spiritual words and, you, and you've said like the big theological words or whatever. But then you're like, my mind has not been engaged at all. I'm just kind of saying things like, what did I just say? I didn't even mean that. Like, what? I'm just in autopilot. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. <laughs> uh, guilty. But, but sometimes you, you, you start praying and you're just not really engaged. And sometimes I've, I've, in the middle of my prayer, stopped and confessed to the Lord. Lord, I'm not even paying attention. I'm just saying these words. Forgive me for being so flippant in prayer. And then it helps me to focus in prayer. Because sometimes we have to pray and keep praying until we really start praying. I, do you know what I mean? Right? Okay, nod. Yes. Okay. Do this with your head. Okay. So <laughs> uh, you have to pray until you pray. And I think that's a good word that the Puritans give to us because sometimes it, it takes some time to really focus on the Lord and really express to the Lord what's really on our hearts and not just telling the Lord what we think he wants to hear from us, but really telling him what is on our hearts. One more thing to, to mention here by way of application uh, Jesus prays for these apostles in John chapter 17, uh, right before his, his death, on the eve of his death. And uh, it's just incredible what he, he prays in John chapter 17. Um, he prays for his apostles and then for future believers who will come after them. And, and here's what he, he prays for them in John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so he prays for them. These are precious men that he has poured over in prayer and he will continue to pray for them. And so this is the prayer that Jesus prays, the dependence in prayer for the apostles, which will continue. And then he goes on to pray in John 17 for future believers, that's us, uh, and he continues to pray for us as well. Here's the dependence of Jesus in prayer for these men. Then we see, second, the draft of the apostles, the draft of the apostles. Chapter 6, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. After this night of intense prayer, Jesus is ready to make his picks. Here's the draft. Luke adds the in Jesus' selection of the 12, that it was out of the larger group of disciples. And so it says he called the disciples, this bigger group, and then he chooses out of them 12. It's like getting picked for dodgeball. It's like, you, you, you. And he's picking these guys out. And some of them, I don't know, where are they going like, me? Are you sure? What? Uh, And he selects those whom he wants. This is the draft. All, disciple, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. And Jesus selected those he wanted. He sovereignly chose the ones he wanted for this special task. Um, you think about this sovereign choosing of them in John 15, verse 16. This no doubt has application beyond, but he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So wherever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In John 6, verse 70, he says, Jesus, said to, uh, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Chapter 13, verse 18 of John, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Speaking of Judas. So Jesus selects them. And he intentionally selects these 12, including Judas, for his purposes. Now, while these men were chosen for a special office in the church, it is certainly the case that for all other servants of God, those who've been called according to his purpose, they've been chosen before the foundation of the world as well. Uh, we just see this so many places, but maybe just one. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we read, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so here's this sovereign choice. What an undeserved mercy. I mean, these guys are ordinary men. What, what do you have in you that was not already given to you? This is the constant uh, refrain in the New Testament. God chooses the ordinary. He, cho- he chooses the foolish in the world. And so these men get this undeserved mercy to not only be chosen for salvation, but they are chosen for this incredible work as apostles. And we've already pointed out how many Jesus chose. He chose 12. And we see really the rejection of the religious leadership. Notice who he does not choose right? Among these men. Jesus did not choose any rabbis. Jesus did not choose any Pharisees. He did not choose any Sadducees. He didn't choose anyone from the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership. He didn't choose any priests. He didn't choose anyone from the current religious leadership of his day. He rejected all of them. Who does he choose? Mostly fishermen 
uh, a tax collector, a zealot uh, who hates Rome, uh, a tax collector who works for Rome. I mean, you have all these, this mix of people uh, that no doubt the religious leadership would have looked at and gone, what? These are your choice. This is your picks? Well, where are their credentials? They, none of them have a PhD. I mean, none of them have studied uh, in the schools. And that's actually what they said. They're unlearned men. And yet he chooses these uneducated men. He chooses men outside the religious system because it is corrupt. The church is going to function in a parallel way to Israel now that they're kind of temporarily on the shelf. And he's going to use these 12 men. No doubt as a connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. These are distinguished because in the future, you have uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, chapter 22, verse 29, he says, and I assign you to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the future, millennial kingdom, there's gonna be the 12 apostles, and there's going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, which means Israel is going to be reconstituted, saved, included in the kingdom. And not only that, in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, you learn that there is uh, foundations that have the names of the apostles on them. And you're like, is it Matthias or Paul? It's like, we're not going to go there. But, uh, and then you have these 12 gates or the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they're both memorialized there, uh, signifying the people of God. So Judaism is apostate, and so Jesus chooses chooses the 12 men uh, to lead the people of God. Mark adds something significant here in Mark 3, verse 14. He says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. So they might be with him. I mean, that is the essence of discipleship, to be with Jesus. I mean, and and if we're going to do discipleship and just do spiritual good to one another, it requires that you be with people. And not just in formal settings like, you know, going to coffee and that's good and and just having a Bible study, but just being together, doing life together, you know, hanging out together. So you can see how you respond and how this person responds because much of the Christian life is not only taught but caught. And you see the example of others. And so it's very good to just be together. Uh, And Jesus wanted them to live with him, to do life with him, to learn uh, from him and being with him. And this is what defined these men. This is what gave them a savor, a gospel tincture. In Acts chapter four, verse 13, they're preaching. I mean, just when you see after the resurrection, these guys get the spirit of God, they are totally different. I mean, Peter, uh, who is denying the Lord and then he's restored, then he preaches this like lights out sermon and he preaches another one and then they're arrested and they're flogged. And then it says in verse 13 of chapter four, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, that's why Jesus called these men, to be with him, to be near him. And it had such an effect upon these men. It took time, yes. God was patient with them, yes. But God transformed these men. He does the same for us as we are with Jesus. You could ask this question, can people tell that you've been with Jesus? Can people tell that you've been with Jesus? Is there a savor about Christ to you? That's what we want to have more of. These men were about to enroll into the master's seminary. 
I couldn't resist. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> they were going to do everything together from this point on. And so we see here the draft of the apostles. And notice third, the distinctiveness of the apostles. The distinctiveness of the apostles. And here, just this phrase, the end of verse 13, which says, whom he named apostles. Whom he named apostles. Well, what is an apostle? Now, it means sent one or messenger, like a delegate. There's a formal and there's an informal usage of this term in the New Testament. I'll give you an example of an informal usage in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 25, you read, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So he's a messenger. He's an apostolos, right? The idea is he's a messenger. So this is kind of an informal use. It's the one who was sent. They're a messenger. It's not a technical usage. The same is true in 2 Thessalonians 8.23, and there's some others as well. That's not what is being addressed here in Luke 6. The general sense is just, yeah, you're sent. You're, you're sent out. You're a messenger. But Jesus chose these 12 for a particular role. Like we would say, those are like cap, lowercase a apostle. There's a capital A apostle. This, the 12, as they're called. They are uh, unique in their office and gifting. And they're a non-repeatable office. They are the A-team, the A-team, capital A, apostles. The apostles would serve as Jesus' authorized representatives, the, his authorized representatives. It was as if they, these apostles were deputized by Jesus, given this authority. Uh, they were given power of attorney, we might say. And Jesus would later give them authority in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 1 and 2. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so they could heal individuals, they could cast out demons, they were authorized to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, later, they would be authorized to write the New Testament. Jesus didn't write any of the books of the Bible. The apostles wrote the entirety, well, the apostles and the close associates of the apostles wrote the New Testament. That was one of the ways, that was the primary way the early church knew what books of the Bible were the Bible, right? Uh, the New Testament in particular. Uh, we, the New Old Testament was settled. I mean, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament of his day, the 22 books of the Hebrew Bible, which matches up with what we have in our English Bibles, those books, um, so we have that settled, but he authorized the apostles to write the New Testament and, and, and to oversee those who weren't apostles, like Luke. Luke's not an apostle, but he is under the apostolic authority, most likely, of Paul, and he's doing research, interviewing apostles as well. Um, Mark is not an apostle, but he's under the authority of Peter, and he's writing the memoirs of Peter. John is an apostle, Matthew's an apostle, so just those, those are the gospels, but then you have others as well who are writing, and they're writing under the authority of the apostles. It's all within this time period, and you see this in John chapter 14. I think this is helpful, so turn there uh, to see this. If anyone ever asks you, like, why, the, why these 66 books and no others? The answer is, in part, the apostles. You could say, well, the Old Testament, Jesus affirmed in his day, that was the, the Old Testament of his day. It didn't include the apocryphal books. 
that the Catholic Church uh, acknowledges in their uh, Bible. And so Jesus affirms the Old Testament, but he authorizes the apostles to write the New Testament. And here's where you see that explicitly. John 14, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the apostles and he says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this isn't a promise to, you know, uh, all of us. This is a particular promise to the apostles. It's not like, I will teach you all things. And it's like, well, I don't need to study for my math test, mom, because this is the promise. I'll teach you all things. So in the moment, I'll just get it. You know, no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, he's saying, he's going to remind you of everything I've said to you. Uh, so yeah, maybe you could have a, a, a side application that the Spirit reminds us of the word of God that we've memorized and learned. But here, this is particular. He's going to, as these men walked along, uh, you... Um, they, they are watching Jesus, and Jesus, as they, as they sit down to write the, the Gospels and the Acts, you have the Holy Spirit reminding them of things that they've learned. So they don't even have to have sources at all times to write their Gospel. Some of them use sources, but they don't need that because the Spirit is going to remind them of everything I've said to you. And so that's how they write Matthew to Acts. And then chapter 16 of John, chapter 16, verse 12 You have, he says, I still have many things to say to you. So that's different from what he's already said to them. What he's already said to them is essentially Matthew to uh, John. And, and then now he has more to say to them, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so here you explain, here's Romans to Jude, and then the things that are to come, Revelation. So, the Spirit is going to empower and enable the apostles and their close associates to write Matthew to Acts, Romans to Jude, and Revelation. This is what Jesus is promising to them, to write the New Testament. And that's exactly what they do. And there are, you know, a truckload of verses that indicate the authority of the apostles and how they are really, whatever they say is like Jesus said it. It's like God said it. I mean, this is how much authority these men have. In fact, let me just give you a couple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is kind of Paul wrapping up his discussion on spiritual gifts and uh, there's women who are teaching in the church and he says, you, you know, this is not to be done. They're not to have these roles of pastor elder and teaching. They should be silent in that capacity. And, uh, and there's some who are pushing back. And so Paul says in response, Verse 36 of chapter 14. Or was it from you that the word of God came? He's being, I think, a little sarcastic here. Oh, the word of God came from you guys. Oh, it didn't. Oh, it came from us. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying. Uh, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Yikes. <laughs> I mean, Paul is throwing down. Uh, his apostolic authority is like, hey, if you don't recognize what I'm saying to you as a command from the Lord, you're not recognized. You're not true. You're false. I mean, they had such authority to say such things. First John, uh, John, uh, very black and white, he says in chapter four, verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Hey, you want to know who's true and who's not? Do they listen to the apostles' teaching? If they don't, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you know, he's, he's, a, he's rejoicing over them because when they received the word of God, they did not receive it only as the words of men, but what it truly is, the words of God. But it's the word that they wrote. It's the words that the apostles wrote. Uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16, Peter goes like, hey, you know, Paul, our beloved brother, sometimes he writes things that are hard to understand. And false teachers come and twist it like they do the rest of the scriptures. And so he equates Paul's writings, Peter does, with the scriptures. They twist other scriptures, they twist Paul's scriptures. And so there's all these instances of the apostolic authority that they had. And this is why Acts 2.42, it says that the church was devoting themselves daily to the apostles' teaching because it was the word of God. One writer said this, their authority was the primary test the early church applied to issues regarding canonicity. That's like what books are a part of the Bible. Uh, if a book or epistle claiming to speak with prophetic authority was written by an apostle or under apostolic oversight, it was recognized as inspired and authoritative. On the other hand, writings that were disconnected from apostolic authority were not considered to be part of the scriptures, no matter what authority the author claimed for himself. So this leads to a question, are there apostles today? Are there apostles today? Can there be apostles today? And the answer is no. And how do you know this? Well, part of it is because of the qualifications for an apostle. No one can meet the qualifications for an apostle any longer. So what are they? There's really three main ones. First, you had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And we have a hint of this because, not a hint, but a shout, <laughs> uh, in Acts chapter one, because remember Judas hangs himself, he dies, and they, need to, they see the need to replace Judas so that they have 12. And it says in Acts 1, and you get a, a sense of how they're thinking about this process, in Acts 1, verse 21 um, and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And don't you love to read between the lines and think, wow, like we know the 12, but there were so many other people who had that experience. They were with them all along that time. They saw so many things. This is why John goes like, man, the books could not contain all the stories. And you're like, yeah, there's a ton of stuff that's not even mentioned. I mean, some of these apostles, we don't know hardly anything about. They're not even mentioned besides their names. And so you go, man, what did those guys do? I want to read that book. But we just don't get it. And so they actually let Jesus choose Matthias. How? By casting lots. They say, we're going to cast lots to see which one. So they, they have these two guys, these two options, and they, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place, take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so then it's fulfilled. There's 12. 
And so they had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Paul fits that because he actually says he's the last one to see the resurrected Christ, which seems to close out the apostolic ability to be qualified. Second, so not only physical eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, personally appointed by the Lord Jesus. So, I mean, the easy one is these guys are appointed directly, but even Matthias is appointed directly because they say, you, Lord, you show us which one, and we're going to do it through casting lots. Jesus has ascended to the right hand, and so he chooses. Then he directly chooses Paul later on the road to Damascus. And so they had to be directly appointed by the Lord Jesus. And then third, they had to be authenticated by miraculous signs. Authenticated by miraculous signs. And you see them performing all kinds of miraculous signs in, the, uh, in Acts, even in the Gospels. Uh, but here you see two, two explicit texts here. Second, Thess- sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 Paul has, he's dealing in 2 Corinthians with this group you might call the super apostles. They're like claiming to be apostles and they're, they're trying to exercise authority that they don't have and Paul is rebuking them and addressing them and he says in verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it for I ought to have been commanded by you or commended, sorry, commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I am nothing. And then he says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so Paul says, you know how, you know I'm genuine? I perform the signs of a true apostle. Get any of these super apostles in front of us. Have them perform those signs. Oh yeah, they can't because they're not real apostles. And that's his point he's making. We perform the signs of a true apostle. Look at those signs. What were they for? They were to authenticate the apostles because they're giving out the entirety of the New Testament and Revelation. How do you know these guys are legit? Because they can do these signs. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 19, or verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry, the gospel of Christ. And in Hebrews, Hebrews, how does Moses make his coffee? He brews it. <laughs> okay, waking you guys up a little. Okay, Hebrews chapter two, verse Three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so these, these signs, wonders, and miracles were given to the apostles to authenticate their ministry, and uh, that was one of the qualifications. So you don't have people who are able to be appointed by the uh, who, who saw the resurrected Christ. You don't have people who have been personally appointed by the Lord Jesus because Paul actually says, and last of all to me as one untimely born. And Paul explains his, his uh, strange appointment, if you will, his different appointment, but it fits, it fits. And he's, he even says it, he's the last. So I think that alone is an indication that the apostle apostolic era has ended. What's also interesting James is the first apostle to be martyred, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. But what you notice is that after James dies, there's no effort to replace James. They don't get together the band again and go, hey, let's cast lots again and replace this dude. Nope, 
it's over because it's passing away already even within the book of Acts that once these guys pass on, they've already established the doctrine that will be the authority. So if the apostles have delegated authority, well, that authority remains today and it's here. Like here are the 12 apostles, you know, delegated authority in our hands. And so we don't have apostles today. So just be highly suspicious like of anyone who says that they're an apostle. Um, they're not. Uh, and they just are probably power hungry to want to have more authority than they ought to have. So, what does this mean for us today? Well, here's uh, one book, actually from Strange Fire, good book, uh, on thinking through some of these issues. It says this on apostles. The most critical change that all faithful Christians must recognize is that the canon of Scripture is closed. It means there's no more books being added to the Bible and, and no more revelation. And we know it is closed precisely because the apostolic office did not continue past the first century of church history. What has remained as our sole authority today is the written testimony of the apostles, an inspired record of their authoritative teaching contained in the Bible. Hence, the writings of the New Testament constitute the only true apostolic authority in the church today. And so the apostles served as a foundational role in the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In chapter three, verse five, it says this mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so he's revealed these new revelation to the apostles and prophets. And so they have a foundation. How many times do you lay a foundation? Once, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, um, actually, we were doing a building project at Faith Bible, and they, they, they put up walls, and, uh, uh, and it turned out like that the company doing it was like doing a terrible job, and we found out and like had to fire them and hire a new company, and they came in and did like x-ray of the walls, and they were like, yeah, these are shoddy. You can't use these walls. We had to knock the entire walls down and start over. So there's the, there was the foundation, but the walls, you know, it's like, you don't want your walls to fall over, so we got to do this again. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. But how many times do you lay a foundation? Ideally, <laughs> you're supposed to do it one time, and that's the idea of the apostles. You lay it one time, and it's finished. And that's what we have, the apostolic writings. So no more apostles today. Here's another interesting little factoid. And don't worry, we're not, we're not going to look at the apostles. We're going to save the apostles for, for next week, the description of them. So we're going to wrap it up, land the plane here. But notice that the apostle, apostleship is listed as a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is an office and a gift. But we've already seen that you can't be an apostle anymore. So at least one gift in the church is no longer being given. I think that opens the door for what we call cessationism, that we don't see the sign gifts as operating today in the church. If you can get on board that there are no more apostles uh, in the church today, then at least one gift is no longer being given. And it's, a, it's for a particular purpose because the revelation the church needs has already been given. Therefore, this office of apostle is no longer needed to give direct revelation from God. And I think it does indicate then the other sign gifts were to authenticate, get the church off the ground, are no longer being given as well. Things like the gift of healing, the gift of apostleship, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, things like that, we're not expected to see functioning in the church after this early apostolic era. So that is uh, 
the distinctiveness of the apostles. We're not looking to see them. Next time, we'll look at the description of the apostles, the description of the apostles, and I mean, there is so much here. It's so good. I mean, uh, one pastor I really look up to um, and uh, one of my professors in seminary, he preached 10 sermons on the 12th. Okay, I'm not gonna do that to you. I was gonna try and do it all today, but... uh, you know, I'm looking at the time and, you know, I, I want you to really appreciate these 12 and we're going to just look at a little bit about surveying some of their lives that we can and just gleaning. It is so good. It is so good. The riches of looking at some of the studies of these guys' lives and what God did in changing them and using them and nearly all of them, church history tells us, were killed for their faith. Save the apostle John. And so we want to we wanna just kind of wring that out a little bit and, and look before we move on Uh, to the rest of this. Gideon chose his men. He chose really some of the worst, some of the uh, most knuckleheaded guys, but intentionally, because God wanted the glory for himself. God chooses ordinary people, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He uses the things which the world considers foolish. He can use each and every one of us, and he's in the process of changing us to make us more useful in his hands, instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time just beginning to look at the apostles and we're thankful for our foundational role in the church that has given us the New Testament. For those of us that know you, our hearts thrill when we read the New Testament. We're so thankful to have this book. I mean, it just explains life to us. It explains the greatest news ever. And you use these men to write it all down. Your spirit enabled them to remember things that you spoke, Lord Jesus, and, and to teach further things that you wanted to say to them. And we have our marching orders here. We have the, what it is that we are to know and believe and treasure and live out. Help us by your spirit to live out what you enabled them to write. We thank you, Lord, for our church and for just uh, our stance upon the apostles' teaching. And may we continue to devote ourselves to this and find great delight in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's respond.